welcome to Rules of the Frame. My name is Connor Reed. My name is Riley Hardy. Mm-hmm. And today we are joined by a special guest, Elise Yeomans. Hello, I'm Elise Yeomans. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And for those of you who don't know, this is a film podcast where we basically choose a subject and then kind of delve into it. Each episode, we do a different film and relate the subject to the film and vice versa and all that good sort of stuff. And so we're kind of still in the beginning of our second animation series about the underdogs of animation and... Yeah, but before we really get into the episode, we'll just have Elise kind of introduce herself and all that good stuff. Okay, um, I double majored in graphic design and illustration, so I'm excited about uh, the animation section of this podcast, and uh, I have a lot of opinions. So <laughs> That's good. Yep. And You're in the right place. Yeah, and Elise uh, went to college with the both of us, mm-hmm. and yeah, just hung out a lot and always in the same friend group, all that sort of stuff. Always watched movies as a group. And a lot of movies. Lots and lots of movies. That's what took up like all the rest of our spare time in college. So today we're doing our episode on Richard Linklater's Scanner Darkly, which is a rotoscoped film from the mid-2000s, and it is very interesting. Um, I'll do a little <laughs> summary of it now and try to figure out how to summarize this one. Um <laughs> So basically, it's set in a dystopian future where Bob Arctor, who is kind of a police agent, he's given an assignment to basically watch out and look out for um, this drug dealer who's selling Substance D, which is just kind of hitting the market and like everyone's on it. And it's just kind of the new big drug that everyone's doing. And so he's uh, in this program where they're given these suits, which basically continually morph the appearance of the user and so there's complete confidentiality for all of the police officers who are working there because it's called a scramble suit and so you can't retain any memory of what the person looked like so he is completely anonymous and he's also given himself as a target and so he basically has to watch himself and monitor himself and and all the things that he does and his friends and so it's a mix of him watching either previous actions that he's done or watching his friends at the time and just kind of seeing all the drug use. And there's just kind of this network that is around the whole country, presumably, where you can just see anything that everyone's doing. There's no privacy whatsoever, and so he can't hide. And so he also has to go on to his normal life, you know, doing drugs, hang out, hanging out with his drug addict friends. And it's kind of their misadventures through that and through life in this dystopian California where they just kind of roam about and talk philosophically about things and he's kind of descending more and more into madness and having hallucinations and there's this reaction test that they do where they I think they judge his psyche like by asking him questions and he gives them answers and from there they can determine whether he is sane or not and so he kind of starts slipping more and more with the test especially with this other woman who he is kind of the love interest of the film, but she is not really into him. And then one day, whenever he's on the job, he finds out that one of his his buddies is actually ratting them out and having giving them information on him. And so he has to kind of keep it cool and not give away that he is in the room with one of his friends who's ratting him out while he's there. And from there, it's basically him just descending into madness and his brain just kind of getting scrambled by these drugs and 
at the climax of the film, his buddy is the one who gets arrested because he brings in not enough um, information and has like committed to some crimes. And so they arrest him. But then it turns out that they know that he is Bob Arctor and that he's a drug user. And so they arrest him as well. But it also turns out that his chief, who is also wearing a scramble suit, is the love interest in the film as well. So he is taken away to this um, mental health facility to try to get him back. But he is almost just completely gone. And it turns out that it was a plan the whole time to basically scramble his brains with the drugs so that he could go into this mental health facility and kind of infiltrate it because they think they're using the patients as farmers and workers to grow the plant that makes substance D. And so they're hoping that there's still a little bit of himself left in there. And the ending shot is just him in this great field and he sees the flower that is substance D and he kind of looks up into the sky and kind of realizes why he was put there and why everything was made for that. And that is a scanner darkly. Uh, so my two words for the film are uh, countercultural obs- counterculture observed. Uh, I just feel like, th- I mean, this is the book, which is um, a Philip K. Dick novel, is it's almost autobiographical for him and just kind of his experience after uh, he, I think it was, he divorced from his fourth wife and he just kind of let these other drug addicts come into the house and live with him and just kind of did this. And it was like his self-realization of like what is going on with his inner self and how he was kind of losing it and becoming like more paranoid or just like hallucinating and all of these things. And it was like, he said it was like a semi-religious experience, but he didn't know like what it was that was calling to him. And he felt like outside of his body watching himself. And so that's kind of what this novel is about. And it, I, I also feel it's uh, a commentary on the war on drugs and just how poorly that that has been handled. And it, it's just him kind of rising up and saying, you know, these are just really desperate people who don't really know what they're doing and are being used by other people as well. And yeah, so that's why I chose Countercultural Observed. Yeah, I picked uh, Paranoia Visualized. I think the uh, so the animation style, um, we haven't really discussed that yet, but it's rotoscoped. So they actually filmed live action scenes and simply animated, well, not simply, I guess, but animated over it uh, with computers. So it looks very different, and it's it doesn't even look like a normal animated movie either. It has a very distinct uh, visual style, and part of it seemed to really like shift for me when I was watching it. Because, like, you know, traditionally like hand-drawn animation is done on cells and so there's like different layers of animation and so I don't know exactly how all that uh if any of that kind of played into it but I could tell that the different pieces of animation in the scene were like shifting perspective sort of as the scene was going on and it was really trippy and it was kind of disorienting and I'm sure that was done intentionally but I was like wow that they're probably trying to replicate what it's like to be on drugs. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of fascinating. And uh, it's an interesting style. And it's it strikes a really weird balance between realism and... Uh, Surrealism. And animation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, those were my words. All right. Uh, my words were obscured meaning. Because, um, okay, so the title itself is a verse, um, mm-hmm. which has been sort of messed with a little bit. Um 
it's first corinthians 12 uh for now we see through a glass darkly but then face to face now i know in part but then i shall know even as also i am known and i thought that was super interesting that that was uh the title because he talks so often uh the main character bob or whatever his real name is um (laughs) about he he doesn't even know who he is anymore there's so much conspiracy in this movie where he's like, who is the person I'm working with? Who are the people that I'm living in this house with? Who am I? Nobody knows what's going on. This whole movie, everything is obscure. Yeah, nobody. I didn't know what was going on yeah. almost the whole movie. <laughs> and it made it made me paranoid. It made me be like, ooh, what does this mean? And I'm like, uh, like even when the two scientists were talking to each other, they kept accidentally talking in harmony and then looking at each other. I was like, is this representing, like, two sides of the brain in harmony, or am I just making stuff up? Like, you're looking mm-hmm. for clues constantly. Yeah. I think that's just kind of Linklater's touch as well, because he's he's very upfront about his films, but I feel like his films are also very subversive in the fact that they just kind of... They're things that you realize about it afterwards are so, like, mm-hmm. deeply hidden in there that... Unless if, like, it's almost, you pick up on it subconsciously instead of, like, intentionally looking for it. And that's how I always feel with, like, after watching all of his films. Like, I'll be looking and I'm like, okay, what is the deeper meaning for this? And <laughs> yeah. whenever I try to do it intentionally, it's like, oh, I, I feel like I'm missing it. And then I'll just be thinking about it later on and just, like, something that I just picked up on just, you know, not while I was being as observant. And I was like, oh, that was it. Like, that was the really wow. important key factor in it. Or that was... Mm-hmm. And, Especially like with his before trilogy and just like his use of Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy's characters where literally the entire story just revolves around their relationship. And there are just these moments in there where he just captures something that like if you're trying to look for it, you're not going to see it. But it's like if you've if you've been in love or like you've just experienced like a crazy moment with like a person that you're interested in. You're like, I know that feeling. And it's not something that you can just like observe, but it's like, Oh man, like there's something that just hits you. Like one of my favorite, like probably my favorite scene in any link later film is from before sunrise, the scene whenever um, Ethan Hawke and Julie Dopley's characters are in the record shop. And they're just like in this little back room and they just put on an LP and it's just like this, you know, the camera's placed, like, low to the ground, so it's looking up at the both of them, and it's both of them listening to this song, and it's the mixture of the song and the way that they kind of, like, awkwardly look around the room, and, like, there's just, like, this subtle glance that they pass between the two of them, and I was just like, oh, like, that's it, you know, that's that's what it is, and, Mm. yeah, he's just incredible at bringing those moments out, and so I feel like this doesn't, this film doesn't have, like, the the sweeter or like more fun moments of that, but it's more of like the, oh yeah, I've felt that sense of paranoia before. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe, I think this is his only, is this his only adaptation? I don't All think so. Ones... He just did Last Flag Flying and Where'd You Go Bernadette and Fast Food Nation is an adaptation as well. Is it? Um, yeah, because I, f- I felt like, I didn't really see Linklater's style very blatantly and if it is if it was definitely there then i missed it but i think he really what what stood out to me was the the philip k dickness of it yeah because it it felt very you know odd just like you know i've I've read um do androids dream of electric sheep and i started reading this i started reading a scanner darkly i didn't finish it um but they both just have this weird ominous nature about them and i felt like that definitely came through in the movie 
So maybe it was his intention to kind of let that shine through stronger. I didn't really feel like it was a Linklater movie because uh, it was yeah, it was very different than his others. Uh, Are and, his other films funny? I haven't really seen... School of Rock is hilarious. I love oh, School did, of Rock. Oh, no Connor doesn't like it as much, it, but he, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> he goes back and forth. He's always very good about having funny moments, even in his most serious films. Because, like, the Before Trilogy, especially Before Midnight, just destroys you. But there are also these moments of, like, almost dark comedy within the relationship. Um, but, you know, he did Dazed and Confused. Mm-hmm. and Yeah, I was going to say, that's a comedy. Yeah, right? Everybody Wants Some, which is also a comedy. And, you know, he... Bernie, you know, School of Rock, oh, Bernie. all that okay. sort of stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Bernie's great. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love Bernie. Yeah, and so I think that he, Bad News Bears, too, that's another one. Um, he has a different sense of comedy because he can do talking comedy better than just about, like, any other um, American filmmaker I can think of and other comedies I can think of because he makes it interesting where even though it is just two talking heads, there's still just, like, this humor in it. Like, uh, in this... The bicycle scene, whenever they're yes. arguing about how many gears are on the bicycle, yeah. is exactly. just hilarious. That yeah, that's what I was going to say is like <laughs> there was really disarming moments of humor in this where you're so sunk deep in like the conspiracy and the, the ominous feeling of it. And then like these par- this paranoid like group of people like stumbles in over each other and they're like funny and lively. Yeah. And you're like, what? okay, <laughs> all right, I guess I'm along for this ride. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Barris is pretty great. And that's Robert Downey Jr.'s character, right? Yeah. Barris, I think is his name. Yeah, he's pretty great. I I just loved how he would... He kind of comes off as this, like, sort of really smart guy, but then you see he's really not that no. smart. Yeah. So, like, he's kind of both. He's just going to talk. <laughs> well, maybe more so not smart than smart, but just the, he, uh, the way he talks about things, he tries to be very thorough in, in his words and... Uh, the way he describes things and he just gets really excited about them and he talks like not very quickly but just really in long stretches and uh and robert downey jr is, is always great so yeah i loved watching him on screen his performance was so interesting to me because in some ways i felt like he was kind of hamming it up a lot of like the par- <laughs> paranoia mm-hmm. but also like oh, these are just drug addicts and I'm smarter than drug addicts, is like kind of like what his mentality seemed to be like. And throughout it, it just seemed like he was doing a James Spader impression to me. <laughs> like just like like the way he was like... James Spader. It, it kind of like his mixture of his character from The Office of Robert California and then like some of his like more really? serious work. <laughs> it just like his like intonation and like his meter and the way that he talked was mm-hmm. just like... I, I was like, mm. what are you doing rdj you know like this is kind of strange <laughs> he like i thought it was really funny yeah i heard that he uh he wrote all of his lines on post-it notes and like stuck them around the walls and and then the painter just painted over it but he tried to uh, uh to speak as if it was like run on sentences yeah oh, that yeah. was interesting that is interesting that came across yeah mm-hmm. i wish woody harrelson's character would have done more he didn't do a whole lot <laughs> yeah but he was great in the, all the stuff yeah. that he did that's the thing I love about Woody Harrelson is just his he's such a lovable guy and a lovable character that I would watch just about anything with him in it because even whenever he's playing like a scumbag or like just a, a <laughs> bad character, he's still like lovable, you know, like, yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, in this uh, in True Detective, you know, just all that sort of stuff. Like, I don't know. He's just such a likable guy. He has such a Something good about his voice. He's got kind of a soft voice. And yeah. Soothing. Has a soothing quality about it. 
Right, right. But, uh, yeah. And it's interesting to see, like, how far he's gone from, like, Cheers to this. Wait, is mm-hmm. in Cheers? Yeah. What? Yeah, Woody. Played Woody. Mm-hmm. Did you ever watch Cheers? Yeah. Oh, I hated Cheers, yeah. though, so I didn't watch <laughs> what? it. What? Yeah. Ah! yeah. <laughs> Do you want to fight? I love Cheers. Yeah, I'm going to fight. Well, well but... it's, you know, because they're, Frasier's the sequel to Cheers. I know, yeah. Spin-off. It's, it so, feels hypocritical to like Frasier, but hate Cheers. <laughs> but here I am. Frasier's very good. Frasier's probably better than Cheers, I will say. Yeah. But definitely. You gotta acknowledge your roots, though, you know? The thing you were saying about him being a scumbag, but like also lovable, I felt like that was such a theme with the people in this movie mm-hmm. because they were so selfish and paranoid and they would sell each other out like at the drop of a hat. But then the energy was so high and funny and they would sort of bond together and they'd be like yeah i'm gonna sit in this tree all night with you because we are paranoid about something that may or may not be happening mm-hmm. and i'm gonna yell at you but i'm gonna hang out with you yeah and it really kind of humanized bizarre behavior and it made you understand like why i don't know it made you understand them mm-hmm. more yeah i feel like this is kind of an interesting turn for a lot of these actors uh like i can't think of a single like main character in this who hasn't had like a resurgence in popularity recently or like yeah. been popular at one point then kind of fallen off and then like come back again you know like Winona Ryder was huge in the 80s you know with like Heathers and um Edward Scissorhands and she was also in Beetlejuice and all of that and she was kind of like mm-hmm. this 80s darling character and and then like just kind of like silent for a lot of 2000s and then this was kind of like her midpoint, and now she's kind of come back, you know, with Stranger Things, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, Winona Ryder, she's great. And so this is like an interesting choice for yeah. her in that. She's kind of got a cult status now of sorts. And it's funny because in this movie, she is on drugs, but in Stranger Things, everyone just thinks she's on drugs. <laughs> she's so wacky in Stranger Things. Well, not wacky, but, you know, she's distra- in distress. But And even like, this is kind of like the in-between, like right before Robert Downey Jr. is about to hit his peak, too. Because he was like in some indie yeah, stuff before earlier Iron on. Man. Yeah, two um, years before that. He had just done Sherlock? the Shaggy Dog right before oh, this, no. which is like hilarious. <laughs> and people, like there was like this interview with him about Scanner Darkly because he, w- he did Scanner Darkly and Zodiac at the same time. And had done Shaggy Dog before that. Uh-huh. And so the interviewer was asking him mostly about the Scanner Darkly. But at one point he's like, so you just did the Shaggy Dog. Why did you do that? And he's like, man, I just wanted to be in a Disney movie. They gave me a ton of money. And then we're just like, come back in three weeks. It's like, okay. Oh. That sounds good to me. Straightforward, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and which I had totally forgotten he was in that. Like, I watched that movie maybe twice as a kid, and I, I do not remember anything. Who does he play? That. I think he's like the lawyer in that or something. Okay, because all I remember is Tim Allen. Exactly. That's the only memory. I don't remember anybody else. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, this is right before Iron Man and Sherlock and all that. But he yeah, Sherlock Holmes was was that two thousand seven? I uh what, did that maybe? come out before Iron Man? I feel like it came out Did it? Like at the same time so. or maybe it, the year after. I I wanna right say two thousand nine maybe. Okay. Um yeah. yeah, but he'd already done Chaplin, where he played Charlie Chaplin, and oh, so he was like known for that and he had like smaller roles in other big movies and I mean this is definitely before Tropic Thunder as well and all of that. And oh, so yeah. It's it's like a really weird point in his career, I feel like, where he doesn't really understand like what's gonna be happening 
from there on like is he just going to keep on doing indie stuff and then he gets picked up to do like all of these blockbusters and becomes like one of the highest paid actors like ever Mm -hmm. that's true yeah it's an interesting arc for them and then keanu reeves like let's think about where his career was at at this point because he had already done he was pretty fresh off the matrix yeah matrix he did point break uh bill and ted's excellent adventure but he'd also done like indie stuff with my own private idaho and you know all of that so he was like huge well how let's see when was the last matrix movie that was Um, 2003 right I'm not Maybe. sure. I know the first one was 2001. No, the first one was or 2000. Or no, 99. Yeah. 99 or 2000, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I think it was... But, I mean, those were huge, you know? Yeah, I think it was 2002, because didn't Reloaded and Revolutions or Revelations come out at the same year? What? I'm not sure. I didn't... I only saw the first one, actually. Um, yeah, Yeah, I haven't seen the others, mm-hmm. but I've heard that they kind of get progressively worse as they go on. Yeah. There's some really cool stuff in Reloaded that I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And I would watch it just for this. Like, the whole highway chase scene is so cool. Oh, I've definitely oh, seen yeah, that yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, on TV. Yeah. Which, that part's awesome. Yeah. And then, like... I'd like to watch the rest of them. Revelations is just, like... Or Revolutions. I cannot remember which one it is. Mm-hmm. Revolutions, Revelations. <laughs> one of the two. Same thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that yeah. one, I was like, eh, it just ruined it. Yeah. But this movie was before... John Wick or after the before first... John Wick. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So he was kind of yeah because this is 2006. I mean it's mm-hmm. it's like older than I realized. You know. Yeah. He did Speed Two with Sandra Bullock, and oh then gosh. that kind of starts off like his stuff where he starts getting into rom coms like not too long after The Matrix, where he's like in the lake house and all of that, and uh, and yeah. he kind of has like this dip in his career whenever people are like oh, Keanu Reeves, he's just like that bad actor from The Matrix and all that. And then now he's huge again and people worship him. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it, he if he should be considered like a top tier actor. Like, I think he's a good actor. I don't know if I'd say he's a great actor. I don't know. Maybe you guys disagree. But he definitely has a, a fun presence about him and he's he has on he's he's fun to watch on screen, but... Um, yeah, I think it's mostly his presence, and then he picks pretty yeah. interesting projects most of the time, it seems like. Yeah. I've heard the John Wick series is really good. It's and pretty I, good. I really want to watch. I haven't seen any of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I haven't seen the third one yet, but the first two were really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard the third one's pretty good. Some I, I know a couple people who say like it's their favorite of the three. But yeah. So this is also an interesting point in his career. You know, Woody Harrelson, this is right before Zombieland and True Detective and all of that sort of stuff. And so I think he was also kind of in a lull because he did Cheers. He did Natural Born Killers. So he'd shown that he was like a presence, but like still trying to find his niche for it. And I think now he's definitely come into it. Yeah, for sure. And then there's this guy, Robbie... Rory Cochran. Oh, Rory Cochran. Yeah. I don't even. I don't know who that is. Apparently, he was in Days and Confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't have a huge role in this movie. He's in the opening scene with all the bugs and oh, stuff. Oh yeah. He has a couple <laughs> parts. He also has like the, the um part whenever he's like, you know, paralyzed on the bed from the attempted suicide <laughs> oh, yeah. and is like, you know, had the multi or the thing from yeah, between dimensions reading to being. him. Yeah. That, part that was really funny. <laughs> was like just a strange little oasis in the middle of this film mm-hmm. that was that's was probably one of my favorite parts I, me too actually <laughs> like yeah. what's more frustrating and humiliating than trying to do something serious <laughs> and like what was it that fountainhead he was like trying yeah. to die with the fountainhead so people would think he was smart 
and instead he has to like listen to the indignities of his entire life <laughs> for like just like page by 1, page 1000 hours so funny. yeah <laughs> he's like and in oh the first gosh. grade you stole some fingernail clippers yeah <laughs> it's like okay i love that part that's funny yeah which i think yeah. his character is kind of also essential too because he's he's like the extreme end of like the counterculture side who's like paranoid you know has bugs like hallucinogenic bugs crawling all over him all that so you Mm -hmm. see like oh he is that far because you can't have the main character be that far and still be like right i i don't know as like relatable or as you know like you're like oh okay i kind of i can see like his descent into that but you can't already have a character start off at that point otherwise it's going to be like i feel kind of alienated from this character Mm -hmm. or you know they're just kind of a little too out there yeah to be the main character but that was smart to open with him because then you know the stakes of Mm -hmm. continuing down that path right because especially in the scene whenever uh bob's character is sitting on the couch and see like sees woody harrelson's character and robert downey jr's character like transform into the bugs and you're like oh he's he it's starting to happen to him too Mm -hmm. yeah and it's whenever uh freck is that his name freck yeah freck yeah whenever he's you know hallucinating in the very beginning robert downey jr's character tells him to put to put the bugs in a jar and so he starts doing that but then we don't hear of that again so it's it's like what was he trying to get him to do exactly he brings the jar later on and looks in it and sees that it's empty oh he does yeah i must have missed that Mm -hmm. oh Aside from a cameo, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, he's the only recurring character or recurring actor in like a Linklater film because I can't think of any of these other actors, or the lead actors who were in other Linklater films because he usually has his like select people that he uses multiple times. But yeah, I can't mm-hmm. think of anyone. That's true. Well, what were you referring to about somebody later? <laughs> all right oh in the quiz is that what no you're no no not in the quiz but you know about the um the little cameo in this film right the crazy uh, cameo. i know of what at the very end no 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 whenever bob archer's walking down the street the guy yelling out of the megaphone no oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's alex jones <laughs> alex what? jones yes yeah Oh my gosh. Isn't that nuts? You know, That's... That was in one of my notes. I was like, Alex Jones, what a weird cameo. Yeah. Because yeah. he was also but, in Waking Life, too. Yeah, I was going to say, he was also in Waking Life. Oh, he was yelling in the streets there, too? No, he was a, a cab driver, I think. Okay. But yeah, that's weird, because that must have been a time when Alex Jones was kind of big. I mean, I mean, he's kind of big now. I mean, no, he's conspir- way too big now. And he was, like, yeah. pretty minor back then. Like, he was just, like, a radio show host, I think. And I read this interview on, like, them asking Linklater, like, you worked with Alex Jones? And he's like, yeah, he was just, like, this weird guy that we found in an office that was, like, strange and, like, had this weird persona about him. Everyone liked making fun of him, so we just decided, oh hey, gosh. let's just put him in the movie, you know. And he's like, he was a lot more fun in the Bush-era administration and uh you know whenever he was just like anti everything and you know we just thought he was fun and wow yeah that's interesting that's great i'm just trying to figure out why he would have him in here but yeah i mean he was good for that role you know yeah i mean it was but it's like why would he include that role i guess just in a time where people are doing drugs they're paranoid about everything and alex jones is kind of a 
paranoid guy. He, yeah. He's just, he's, you know, buys into so many conspiracies. Screams and, about uh, everything. And yeah. he amplifies them. Yeah. And a lot of crazy stuff. So I guess that makes a little bit of sense. Yeah. And, That's such like. But waking life. They made him a cab driver. Yeah. Okay. It's, I mean, it's just so such weird. a crazy thing. Like, I think if you were directing a movie, you just found this random person on the street, and you're like, oh, this guy seems like he'd be fun to have in the movie. He's like uh-huh. a weird person. You put him in, and then, like, ten years afterwards, he becomes, like, this huge personality that is yeah. just, like, insane and, like, you know, just, like, the voice of the far, you know, side of a political movement and all that. And it's just, like, wow. Like, that's just yeah. such a crazy thing. Yeah, yeah in 2019, is. he is on T-shirts. Yeah. Yeah, he's, <laughs> like, I think Donald Trump was on his show or something like that. Like, Ooh. yeah, it's crazy. And that At this point in his career, he's just kind of known as, he just, people have him on because he'll rant. I mean, and he'll, he won't stop, because I've listened to him on the Joe Rogan podcast. Uh, and, yeah, he'll just go on a crazy rant, to just, and it just, escalates and he talks about crazy things interdimensional beings and all kinds of crazy stuff and that's just kind of his thing now i think is he just will go off and uh just with craziness and so it's like i think it's less about actually what people taking him seriously but more about him just being a crazy uh presence you know yeah yeah he's nuts absolutely insane i don't know i mean that scene it's just so nuts because I feel like that's really the only time you actually see government, um, like government action mm-hmm. in the film. It's just like that him walking mm-hmm. by, the guy yelling, the van pulling up, tasing him, you know, driving away in the bus, and like everything else is like it's just all observance. So it's interesting. Like, why is that thing where they're like, okay, this is the point where we're gonna go get him, and then you know, yeah. all these other people like what like. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that because is he's got a megaphone, maybe, and he's, you know, standing in the streets. But he's in a Burger King parking lot. He's not like <laughs> on Wall Street or like I don't know, like right. in a, right. a big public space or something. It's a good point. Yeah, I don't know. There's so many details in this movie like that where I'm like, what does it mean? Like, what it. Yeah. What was the filmmaker intention? What was the thing in the book? Or is it just random? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, it's just, like you were saying, it's littered with Philip K. Dick's just touches and all that. Like, even the intro scene, I was like, this is a very Philip K. Dick opening, you know, of just like a guy like scrubbing bugs off of himself. And, (laughs) right. It's like you don't necessarily have context for it. Uh, in the beginning you just you're just kind of like wondering what the heck is happening and honestly that was kind of the whole vibe like the whole time i was watching the movie i just was like what is going on like you sort of get some closure here or there but they just he kept a there's a lot of twists and those were really cool i really liked the twist when we find out that uh, hank is donna i thought that was really cool i didn't see that coming at all yeah no, i didn't either um that was really and they cool even directly reference that earlier in the film i think like he's talking really? to his superior and he's like yeah, I could be one of the people in that room too. You don't know with the suit on, just like oh yeah, offhand. Right, I didn't re- realize that. That's funny. It's interesting, like Arctur's composure throughout the entirety of the film, because you think like yeah. since he's surveilling himself, he'd be like, oh, I'm gonna be on the straight and narrow, you know, like. <laughs> but yeah. he's mm-hmm. so zoned out, like and detached. 
from the get-go. Yeah, I guess I kind of had trouble like figuring out what side he was really on. It's like, okay, is this is he kind of losing his position with the law? Like, is he kind of leaning more towards the side of the druggies, or is this? But apparently, like, oh, there's an even greater master plan that he's playing into, and I, and uh, but I guess it's supposed to kind of be uh, ambiguous at first. Uh, but I mean, I felt bad for him, you know, just having. He just really had to immerse himself in the drugs, and then they even said it's like, yeah, well, most people wouldn't have wouldn't have actually taken the drugs. Like he could have just pretended to take them or something, and he was just like, oh, you know, I just had to do it or something. But yeah, I kind of felt bad for him. Yeah, I mean, especially at the end, whenever you realize like oh, the pawn piece that he was in the whole game of yeah. it, and you're just like, gosh, you know, poor guy, he can't catch a break, and like it, you know, that this was like the plan right. the whole time, and. You know, he basically lost his mind so that they could figure out right. how to. It's like, why was it? Why would he do that? Chain? You know, why would he want to? Oh my gosh! To essentially give his life for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know. At the end, when he like picked the flower and he hid it in his shoe, and he was like, "This is for my friends at Thanksgiving." I was like, "Oh, cool! I'm gonna cry." Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it was oh, very poignant. But also, he just he threw his whole life away deliberately yeah. because he was like, "I hate my dishwasher. I hate my wife. I hate my children. I hate that I just bumped my head. I'm gonna throw my entire life away." And it's like, what yeah. happened? What happened to make him do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's just kind of like the tragedy of it being an autobiographical story on. Um, you know, Philip K. Dick is just like, I think it's kind of him retracing his steps of like, how did this happen? You know, like, how did I fall into this? And what is it driving me to? How did I get to this place that I'm at? And why am I feeling this right now? I mean, whenever you read interviews with him, it's very fascinating, especially like, given at what points in his career he's in. Because there's this one where the interviewer like talks to him like do you think you're paranoid he's like I don't think I'm paranoid you know I used to think that but I don't think that anymore because I've had all my paranoia proven true Mm -hmm. so is paranoia just like like a divine gift on us like an extra sense that we had whenever we were you know creatures that you know needed it more is that kind of like I don't know a feeling that used to be more essential to our survival and because he talks about like him Mm -hmm. and his girlfriend living in this house and his girlfriend's like I'm so paranoid that they're gonna someone's gonna break into our house and steal our stuff that they're gonna bust our house up and he's like no it's fine it's fine and then one day he got it too and he's like okay we need to leave and so they leave for like Mm -hmm. a couple days and come back and the house was just totally destroyed and had been broken into like at you know at that time and he's like you know that's whenever I'm like I'm not paranoid I'm just like I have this sense that's so weird Mm. right it ceases to become paranoia, and then it's like intuition or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You definitely see that uh, mindset in this film, like over and over, because everybody seems super crazy and paranoid. But every time they're paranoid about something happening, it happens. Like they were like, "Somebody tampered with the car," and yeah, Donna probably tampered with the car so they couldn't get out of town. And, like, somebody's mm-hmm. bugging our house. And I was like, these crazy people. But, like, yeah, there were bugs all over their house. Yeah. And yeah, they were right. Yeah. yeah. And even at the end when he's, like, maybe, I don't know, just, like, every doubt anybody had in this film pretty much was concerned, no matter how crazy it was. I mean, th- I, that's definitely 
his mindset is from what I can tell from his works and this. I mean, you, you even kind of get glimpse of that in Blade Runner, too. It's not so so apparent in the film, but definitely in the book of um, just as struggling with, like, oh, is this, like, a real animal, even? Or is it an electric mm-hmm. animal? You know, it's just, like, there's kind of these subtle things in there. Yeah, and just, like, the big organizations, you know, like the Terrell Corporation versus the, is it New Life, something like that? Yeah, there's just kind of an ambiguity. It's like, what are the real intentions here? It's like, what what's really going on at these places, you know? Yeah, even the themes of, like, monitoring, because this reminded me a lot yeah, of Minority real. Report, which is another uh, story of his. And, you know, that's all about, like, oh, we can observe people's lives and, like, see a little bit into the future about whenever, you know someone's going to commit a crime and so we can stop them before actually committing the crime and like just surveillance is such a big theme in his work that you know it it makes you wonder just kind of if he thought that there was surveillance going on in his house because I feel like what sets him apart from a lot of science fiction authors is he puts a lot of his own like personal truths and beliefs and like suspicions into his work like a lot of his work feels like autobiographical in that sense mm-hmm. whereas like like compared to like arthur c clark who wrote 2001 a space odyssey and like other like some would say like more traditional sci-fi where that's like it's it's more like pure fantasy in the sense of like oh it's you know people going out into space or like scientific on like these are the calculations that they put into the computer and like kind of exploring like themes for mankind as a whole mm-hmm. instead of like the individual man Ooh, yeah i always mm. felt like um blade runner was a really emotional movie mm-hmm. like it was about emotional realities more than it was about um like the world that was just kind of peripheral um which is super interesting because i you're kind of getting a peek into his mind more than anything else no, I, I kind of go back and forth on his work, too, where there are points where I'm like, I just want to read all of his stuff. And then I'm like, no, that'd be way too overwhelming. <laughs> like, I'd be so paranoid. <laughs> well, I'd mess you up. <laughs> that'd be a lot to take in. Do you think this movie was more Linklater or more Philip K. Dick? I think it was both. I feel like it was really evenly both, actually. Equally even handed. Mm-hmm. Whenever you're saying, like, I didn't feel like a lot of Linklater's touch in it, I think to me what spoke true about it being a Linklater film was that it was a lot of people talking and talking about interesting philosophical things and it being entertaining just by that. And that to me is like what makes Linklater such a good filmmaker where he can have a movie like Before Sunset where it's literally two people walking in the streets and talking the entirety of the 90 minutes and have it be acclaimed as like one of the greatest American films of all time. Yeah, Linklater has great dialogue. Very... I don't know. Of course, I haven't seen the Before Trilogy, and that's kind of the most blatant use of that. But then I think about Boyhood and that movie, which I I like for the most part. Um, but that has some interesting dialogue as well, just between like the mother and son. And the son is not very uh, responsive, really. He doesn't have a whole lot to say, but it's like it does feel very real. Uh, and so I, I do like the way that he depicts certain uh maybe relationships or how he how he depicts the conversation Mm. yeah and how many of his films have you seen elise um not very many i've seen school of rock (laughs) uh that might be it really i think so (laughs) 
Hmm. Or as far as I'm aware, yeah. I don't hmm. think I've seen any yeah. of the other ones you guys were talking about. Yeah. But, did you see Bernie? Or? Oh, I did see Bernie too, yeah. Oh, man. That that one's good. Oof, that's a really good one, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I literally just watched it yesterday, and I was like, oh, oh did you? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love Jack Black. <laughs> yeah. That one's weird. Oh man. Cause it, oh they do they have that whole um, scene where the guy's talking about the different parts of Texas. Um, that part's so good. And it's like just a string of opinions for a long time, and you're like just like different Texan stereotypes or something. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like the it's like the map of the U.S. with Texas taking up like ninety percent of it. Right. And like the little doodles, like, oh, there's nothing over here. It's great. Yeah. And even just like at the end, he's like, I can't believe they took it to that podunk town where all these people who shouldn't even be let out of the county were allowed to be on the jury. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. You're like, ah. So ridiculous. But like the the dialogue just gets you. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Which Riley, remember when we went there to Carthage? Is it like that? Yeah, we did. We were there. Uh-huh. Yeah, Carth- yeah, it was uh right it's pretty close to San Augustine, which is yeah. where we were actually visiting. But mm-hmm. uh yeah, that was really cool. It felt it definitely right felt like that. Like watching it now I'm like Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's totally it. And definitely like I've been living here for I've been living in Texas for like two years now and uh you know, I've been to several of the small towns, and they all have similar feels, and it does feel like that. And they talk just like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much in Dallas. The accents are are not super thick in Dallas. You get a lot of city folk here, but uh, <laughs> yeah, those smaller those smaller towns, like you know, fifteen, ten thousand people. People just live there their whole lives, and you see a lot of the people that you see in the, in Bernie. You know, interesting folk. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's like kind of what draws Link later to a lot of his films is just seeing like there's really interesting people in the world and I want to make movies about them. And I feel like that's kind of like how he chooses a lot of his pictures is it's like not always so much based on like the story of it, but just like I find this character really fascinating. They deserve 90 minutes. Mm. And Alex Jones deserves two seconds. Two seconds. (laughs) Plus waking life. So maybe five seconds. Yeah. (laughs) I do really like that, though, in filmmaking, like, just curiosity about unusual people. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. just nosiness, probably, and it's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Ooh, this guy's weird. Tell me more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to know more. Yeah. I mean, like, even, like, how we were talking in our Oh Brother, Where Art Thou episode of, like, the Coen brothers just know how to pick extras that are mm-hmm. so, like, interesting-looking or, like just like yeah. talk in a very strange way where you're like oh that was fascinating that person was only in the scene for like 15 seconds but i'm gonna remember that mm-hmm. and, right very memorable mm-hmm. yeah and i feel like link later just takes those characters and it's like i'm gonna give them a full like 15 minutes this time <laughs> did you the character at the very end did you recognize what other movie he was from he had white hair character like the, the he was with guy? he was with uh bob yeah the warden guy Shoot, but he had no. white hair, the older one, not the not the one that showed him his little cabin spot. Okay, but the one after that. Do you know? You remember who I'm talking about? I can't think of it actually. Mm-mm. Yeah, I'm not sure what his name was, but he was a uh, he was also in Boyhood. He played the second dad with the oh white hair. No way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, the golfer. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Yes. So that that's another example of 
he reused him for that. And I wonder if it was like the same the same time frame because you know Boyhood was shot from like 2002 to 2012, so it could have been like while they were filming this movie that they did those scenes with him. So he could have right. And you know the police officer you know, in the beginning uh, also was in Boyhood too. Oh really? Uh huh. Who was he in Boyhood? I think he was just like one of the family friends or something like that. I can't remember, but. Okay. There's a documentary on Richard Linklater called 21 Years, and uh, he talks about it being on there and, like, the difference of being on Boyhood, which was originally called The 12-Year Project, and they're filming it, and it's like, yeah, I was, like, super loose, and, like, we were just kind of allowed to make up stuff, and then this one, I was like, I'm going to be loose again, and, you know, yeah. Richard Linklater was just like, why aren't you reading this script? Like, why aren't you doing this? Like, it was just a much more structured sort of thing. And I think he, uh, he definitely does that with, like, adaptations of the work where it's like, we need to stay more true to the story. I definitely see the value of that in a movie like this where the story is just so out there. It's like, you don't really want to take a different spin on it because, I don't know, Skinner Darkly has its own unique, weird tone and style. And it's like, you want to try and replicate that as best you can. Yeah, and at least, like, I'm curious to know your opinion just kind of on the sci-fi elements of this because I feel like like at least in like the movies that we've watched together or like mm-hmm. stuff that we talk about it's like we're always fascinated with like sci-fi dystopian mm-hmm. like all that sort of stuff and so like I don't know if that piqued any of your interest in this or yeah um I really like sci-fi that's just like a half step into the future where most of the things are familiar and then there's just a thing here and there where you're like oh we're not quite there yet this one felt really close to me. Like, I mean, we're all under surveillance. We've all given up at this point, whatever. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, we're still not quite at the morphing our uh, faces stage yet where identities are obscured. But Yeah, I mean, it's kind of more real than we think it is just with, you know, companies like Google and all the services that you're opted into on your phone that you didn't even realize you were opted into and it knows all your habits and knows what you're watching it knows what you know what you're eating and just everything you're doing it's like what to it's, a lot of that is, is known by people and by companies you know yeah it's kind of a very gross yeah 1984ish a little bit it's gross <laughs> and it's too late uh, but anyway see i've kind of <laughs> some of it i kind of embrace it's like you know what if if google can give me really good recommendations on that uh, yeah you know there's perks cool for sure yeah there is perks but that's how they get you yeah no i'm i'm yeah. there too but um <laughs> it did i i don't know i like them when they're just a tiny bit in the future because it does make you think um will this technology become necessary um not that long in the future like will it be necessary for people to obscure their identities the more that we're observed and monitored, uh, will we counteract it in that particular way? Like, I don't know. I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Like, how are we going to alter ourselves to try to combat the surveillance that we are under? I'm not sure yet. Yeah. What about you? Um, yeah, I, I always go back and forth on dystopian stuff because a lot of the books that I've read, I'm like, not as about that like I remember reading and I think I just need to reread them again but 1984 and Anthem Mm -hmm. in um, high school and just like not being about that I'm like I do not like this but like I love dystopian films and I think if I revisit it 
the way we read 1984 was stupid. Like, I don't know if you <laughs> remember Miss Riley. No, Miss... Is that um, the other Miss... Um, shoot, who was it? It was AP Lang that we read it. Miss Meeker. But That's right. They, yep. she, she had us each in sections, and then the sections would read different parts of the book and then explain the other parts that the other groups didn't read to each other. So we didn't actually read the whole book yeah. individually. And I was like, that's so dumb. Like, you know, I remember that. That was kind of dumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that is a very weird book, though. Like, I could see being a high schooler and reading it and being like, ugh, what is this? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's yeah. designed to be off-putting, but maybe it's too good at its job. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I know. And this feels like very Gilliam-esque is where, like, just in the the treatment of dystopian stuff like it um i mean it just kind of reminds me of brazil in the sense of like insanity is all around you but everyone is so insane that they won't tell you that you're insane or like you know just that's the fear yeah that is kind of scary yeah and um what's really interesting is terry gilliam actually wanted to do an adaptation of scanner darkly which i feel like would be perfect yes Mm. Um, maybe it'd be too perfect yeah. like we'd all be at the brink of madness ourselves right <laughs> right and like talking about this you know it, we can't also not bring up fear and loathing in las vegas which <laughs> yeah elise and i watched together and yeah uh, we did and we we're like can you get high from watching movies <laughs> yeah because <laughs> it sure feels like yeah no that was so i haven't seen one. that one mm-hmm. it it's pretty interesting i don't know if i would want to watch it again I probably would, yeah. but with yeah. long breaks in between, because it's, it's <laughs> exhausting. And then just when you're, like, despairing, it makes you laugh, and you're like, how dare you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, that's also autobiographical about Hunter S. Thompson, the famous, like, gonzo journalist. So, mm, it's okay. interesting. Like, what always interests me is, like, people making autobiographical material that is about them like doing drugs and i'm like isn't there some kind of legal thing where you could get arrested for doing this or you could i think there's a licensing of like oh creative arts yeah yeah i don't know how that works or it's just past the statute of limitations yeah yeah (laughs) and more than 10 years or no physical evidence because they already did all of the drugs they're not there anymore so Mm -hmm. right yeah or like i'd be scared though right do it and, like, the interviews of, like, Hunter S. Thompson where he said he'd, like, invite friends over and they'd get super drunk and they'd go out into a forest with, like, real guns and, like, shoot at each other. What? And that sort of thing. Yeah. Just nuts stuff like that. I'm like, Jeez. how are you not in jail? Like, you know, we're just, like... We're dead. We're dead. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, we're dead, for real. Maybe Hunter Thompson yeah. did go to jail. I can't remember. But I would not well. be surprised. <laughs> but even just kind of Linklater's own stories where he's, like... Uh, I I feel like he likes to tell counterculture stories uh, about like drug use, um, not always to the extent of like a Scanner Darkly, but like Dazed and Confused, you know, where it's like a bunch of like teenagers and high schoolers like just getting high, and that's kind of like what the whole movie is about. And like, I feel like there's always like a small theme of that in a lot of his films as well, and you know that's just interesting because he's like also you know, part of counterculture and has like talked about that as well. And yeah. Thing I thought was pretty interesting about it is like, I I almost feel like movies like this would do a better job of scaring somebody off of being intrigued by drugs than like Mm. the actual like reefer madness stuff that they made to try (laughs) to scare people. Yeah. Um, Mm. 
because it's not just like drugs will make you possessed by Satan. It's like you will <laughs> feel genuine despair and confusion and loss mm-hmm. and <laughs> yeah, it doesn't glorify it in any way. No, it yeah, humanizes it for sure, but it it's definitely yeah. like this is a bad time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some of the yeah. time, I don't know. I mean, even, you know, we haven't really talked about the animation style that much. And so Oops. kind of bringing it in with this is like, you know, the the purposeful intent of like, there's like almost always someone who is on drugs who is in the scene. Yeah. And like the purposeful intent of using this style of rotoscoping for that to give kind of a drug induced feel to it where you're like, oh, everything's a little hazy, not super descriptive. And in that sense, there's kind of like the blurring of persons like it's almost like a scramble suit for the entire film you know because it's not the exact person it's not the exact location or any of that yeah that's Mm -hmm. a super good point because at first i was like this is uh very ugly why did they do this and then i was like oh dang it it's thematic like there was this part there was this little quote that um keanu fred bob arter guy said about his own life when he started to like take uh death and he said um ugly things and surprising things and sometimes little wondrous things spill out in me constantly and i can count on nothing and i feel like that's exactly what the animation style was like there were moments of beautiful clarity like where the light Mm. was cool and like the uh the line art was really well done and you were like oh this is actually not that bad and then it would like you'd slide into the diner and the floor would be sliding around and the people are sliding around in their seats and it didn't look Mm -hmm. deliberate and you're like ugh, here we are Mm -hmm. yeah it's funny you say that because i think they actually had a lot of trouble animating this or there was a lot of i guess kind of some drama that went on i mean it was they used a new uh new software called rotoshop and the people that were working on it that didn't have any movie experience really and they were kind of amateurs and uh there's just kind of a not a super professional environment i guess and so there was just a a really big lack of consistency across the team which it's like when you say that things weren't consistent it's like well maybe it was because of that maybe or was that intentional it's like i don't know (laughs) Right. I know. I thought about that too because I I read into like uh, what happened on the crew a little bit because mm-hmm. I was like, why is this so wildly different? And I guess like a bunch of people walked out midway through the film. A bunch of the animators, um, they weren't being compensated very well. Well, I think they were. weren't they kicked out? Yeah, they were like fired. one of the producers. Oh, some were fired. The, they were fired. The yeah. guy who developed yeah. the Rotoshop software for Waking Life, because this was originally used on Waking Life, was right. fired from oh, the project. Dang. Was wait. What was that guy's name? Was that like Sebastian? Sabiston. Sabiston. Okay, because I read an interview by him that he said like some people walked out, some people, I guess, were fired, but that half the team was not the same team <laughs> all the way through. Yeah, and like the people who I think were who developed the look of the scramble suits, they were they were just given an additional animation credit, so they weren't like that's insane mainline Gosh, credit, you know. Yeah. And so that was kind of disappointing, but because that was a really cool part of the movie, and it's one of my favorite little bits of animation was just watching the the suits and just like looking at all the different pieces of people, you know, popping in and out. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that was the moment for me where I was watching this, where I was like, "Why did he rotoscope that this?" Yes. And then like as soon as it got to that, I'm like, "This is why he did this." 
Yeah. That was mesmerizing. You think that's the reason? I mean, I think that's one of the reasons because it's like that's such an yeah. interesting challenge that I cannot imagine doing in live action. I'm like, you, you just couldn't do it. It would not look good with like no. the technology that we have right now. There's already like a lot of like Uncanny Valley stuff in this film but mm-hmm. I, that I feel like is very intentional. But I feel like if you did it like live action, it would just be so off-putting. People like, I can't look at this yeah. thing for five minutes at a time. Oh, gosh, mm-hmm. yeah. If that had genuine human flesh texture when that was happening, it would <laughs> oh. be very bad. <laughs> yeah, and, for sure. Uh, yeah, I like that, too. It was really distracting when it was going on because every time I was trying to, like, yeah. keep track of how many frames they would have to be doing and, like, how often they're switching and are they reusing faces at all and, like, it, it was, like magnetic it was it's constant this is a constant struggle of mine in animation in general is that I, sometimes i get so caught up in like the animation yeah. that i forget to like listen to what they're saying <laughs> and so <laughs> that happens to me frequently i have to rewind yeah or watch the movie again i mean it's interesting like the takeover that happened like uh what we were talking about whenever they fired uh bob sabiston because they had like already been working on it for a couple months mm-hmm. and um i think that the studio asked like hey we need to see a finished scene and they're like we don't have a finished scene because they were like tackling all of the film all at once instead of doing like beginning to end sort of stuff and so like we just don't have anything because this is taking so long and they were like expecting it to be like the process of like waking life where like it was like the scenes would be given to individual animators and they would just like animate that in the style that they wanted to where this one they're like we need a fluid look throughout it we've developed it so that it looks more realistic and like added a lot of software points to it and so it just took so long and like Richard Linklater said that he couldn't be in there animating whenever uh, like whenever they were animating because it was just so maddening where he would go in and check on the progress of a scene come back two weeks later and say like this looks like nothing has changed and he's like it just drove me insane so he went to go and film Bad News Bears instead (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean, it's a frustrating thing jumping into animation when you're normally a live-action director, although he did Waking Life, but it's just, like, such a different medium, and if you're not really in tune with the process, it's like, uh, how, do, how do I manage it? You know, it's like, it's a, it's a different world, and so it's hard to to know how to, how to manage the progress, you know? So I can bet that was a really challenging spot for him to be in. Right, and if you look at Waking Life and compare it to this, they're like, this looks so fine and so like crisp and like I don't know the animation is more de- way more detailed than in Waking Life because in Waking Life it's a lot more abstract mm-hmm. like whenever people are walking like the backgrounds are moving like everywhere like it's you know like almost like nausea inducing like of just like how much everything is kind of spinning in that um, and this one is so much more complex because there's so many different like camera movements and like all of that and so that the software like really struggled with it and they were hoping for like triple or quadruple the budget from waking life but only got you know double the budget instead and they only had 30 people working on this like think of animating yeah. an entire film in you know the span of like i i don't know i think they were like originally supposed to be done in like eight months or something or like a year maybe mm-hmm. um with 30 people that's nuts and it was, all, I think it was all computers, right? It yeah. wasn't hand-drawn. But I wonder if that was like a, 
an easier thing or a more difficult thing, <laughs> you know? Well, the way they said they did it, I mean, because they would film the actual footage and then they all had like right. Wacom tablets mm -hmm. that they would like trace over the characters with and then animate it like that. That takes forever. Like it takes just as long. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I mean, oh. I guess you can color faster if it's digital um, and it's easier for everything to be consistent. But the actual line drawing itself, that would take pretty much the exact same amount of time, mm -hmm. which is long. You worked with that in college, right? Like yes. the Wacom tablets. And yeah. And yeah, mm. they're frustrating. <laughs> but, uh, they're amazing, but they're frustrating. Yeah. I mean, like, what's the most challenging thing about working with them then? Um, it's not, you don't have the same kind of control that you do on paper. Uh, it takes a while to adjust. Like, there's a lot more wiggle there. It's probably less less tactile. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it it's almost like too smooth. Um, there's no resistance when you're drawing on them, and that's really weird if you're used to paper. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure these people are way more professional and used to that, and don't even notice that. But it does. I mean, I think it does take just as much time as drawing on paper. It's just slicker. <laughs> mm. Right, and for you, like, could you even imagine like? doing something like this uh, like we had a project um early on in college where we oh shoot i can't remember what the machine is called but there it's like a big projector and you put your picture in the machine and there's like mirrors and you flip the projector on and then it projects onto the paper that you have underneath the machine and then you mm. it's such a clunky machine that you pretty much have to climb on top of the table and like draw real quick and then get back off the table um but we just had one assignment where you basically had to draw over a real photo um make a photorealistic drawing based on a real photo and everybody was like this is going to be a breeze we're just going to trace it we're going to be done we're going to get out of here it's going to look great it looked terrible <laughs> and it took 100 years no not really but uh there's like a lot of lines involved when you're doing photorealism and you can't simplify anything so when i was watching this i was like almost nauseated because i was thinking about how many lines there were and then not even just that like the planes of color on their faces they were so detailed um well sometimes and then other times they wouldn't have a nose or something like you'd go to a frame and maybe depending how far away they were yeah the shot or something like that or depending on how big the crew was at that point in process but yep. it would be frustrating this whole project would be very slow and very frustrating mm -hmm. yeah because like i remember i went to um rotoshop's website and like you know kind of looked at some of the interviews of it and what was interesting i mean they'd talk about you know losing most of their crew and like getting replaced and all that and like underneath it and they're like these are some of the shots that we did like before we were all kicked off. And I was looking through, I'm like, these are the best shots in the film. Yeah. Like, cause there are points where it uh, looks really, really good. Uh -huh. And other points yeah. where you're like, Oh, I feel sick. You know, like this is strange. <laughs> and it's like, the reason why is because like the scenes that were really good were the ones that, you know, yeah. people like delved like weeks into to developed instead of like, just like, I don't know, doing it as like more of a machine process. Cause they said whenever, they got replaced, they like brought in people and like totally reorganized the system of how they worked instead of like doing everything all at once. They went back like 
each person was given a specific character, did it in a very like Disney style where each person has a specific character, someone else would do right. background, someone else would do, you know, like all that sort of stuff and became more machine-like and less like individually artistic in that sense. Do you know mm-hmm. which scenes they were? Or can I guess? Like, because I feel like it was all this, all the scenes where Keanu Reeves was inside the suit and the light was shining on his face. Those oh, yeah. were gorgeous. Those were cool. Those were really cool yeah. scenes. The, those were the yeah. times that I was like, oh, wow. This this is so beautiful, actually. Just like looking how they animated his beard. Uh-huh. It's like, oh, it's really cool. And the light, the glow. Yeah. It was awesome. But everything, I don't know. Everything else kind of lost that shine. Yeah. Well, it's interesting even looking at like still shots of the film. I'm like, I think this film looks better when you just look at it at individual <laughs> frames than... Yeah as a film because it looks like impressionist painting especially the last scene whenever he's in the field i'm like this is gorgeous this Mm -hmm. is like you know van gogh or like monet or you know like this is beautiful well they don't have the softening effect of um like exaggerated animation uh i don't like you know that thing where you pause animated movies and the character looks like crazy like they're (laughs) stretching across the screen or like their arm is like three times longer than it should be that yeah, they don't have the benefit of that animation where you compress all those frames uh, really quickly. Everything's shot, 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 shot. Like, they don't ever have any... Oh, that's a song, isn't it? Shot, 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 <laughs> shot, 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 shot. <laughs> No, like, they don't have the... Uh, they don't have the benefit of... Like, squash and stretch. Yeah, squash, squash and stretch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Squash and stretch. Yeah, um, and it's kind of for those reasons that it doesn't really feel like an animated movie Uh it it feels like a live action it is animated but it feels more like live action which is just a weird thing to experience Mm -hmm. you know it's like your brain doesn't really know how to react to it Mm -hmm. Uh, i to me i think it works better as having the whole film rotoscoped than gonna bring him up again ralph bakshi's work where you just have like certain (laughs) things that are more rotoscoped i'm like this looks like crap like this is awful this is garbage you know like (laughs) I don't know. There's just something where it's... If you make it look, like, more cartoonish, it's not going to feel right. Like, there's ways to do it right. Like, Mm -hmm. the early Disney form, you know, where they would just, you know, do more reference than rotoscoping. Yeah. Um, Like, for complex movements, like dances or, um, you know, like, when they were like, oh, wait, how do we film this scene? Instead of, yeah. Exactly. And it wouldn't have, like the jumpiness that like more rotoscoping does where like uh-huh. the characters just move so erratically and you're like that doesn't look like natural to animation <laughs> because the biggest thing that rotoscoping lacks is stability like you were saying Riley of like where they were on cells the paint the backdrops were already mm-hmm. painted whenever like they would do like a push and zoom they would literally like have to move like all of the individual you know, cells of the frame like the foreground yeah. of the trees the midground of like the castle the background of the sky and it's like they would have a machine where it would, like, twist it around like that to work. Yep. But whenever you're just, like, you're taking an actual camera movement, you think it's, like, oh, it's just easy to trace over that. It's, like, mm. no, because literally, like, all of the lines are moving at once, so, of course, it's going to look weird. Yeah, those are yeah. the most dizzy scenes. Was, like, zooming in or any time they were in a car. Mm-hmm. The question I kept asking myself during this movie was, should this be animated or would this be better not animated just as regular live action because obviously they were using it as a tool to 
accomplish the feeling of paranoia, mm-hmm. and I think it definitely accomplished that. But could they have done it differently? Could they have just used a creative color palette or different uh, camera techniques to kind of give a, a similar sense of paranoia? I don't know. I just... I was kind of leaning towards hmm, maybe this shouldn't be animated. Maybe, like maybe I would rather see a version of this that uh, that wasn't animated, that where I just saw creative camera shots, different you know color schemes, color palettes. I don't know. Uh, did you guys ever ask yourself that question? Um, not till just now, but I'm 100% <laughs> on board with like yeah. I think you could definitely. This is just one of many ways to feel like it's confusing and like you're on drugs alongside these people like i think you definitely could shoot it creatively or like do a really bizarre color palette or like strange Mm. angles yeah Yeah. i now i would like to see a version of that where (laughs) it's not animated right okay i'm trying to think what's another movie that shows people on drugs and it fear and loathing in las vegas (laughs) yeah exactly that that one was effective that one is yeah i like i was watching it mike Am I on drugs? Like this is insane. You're just so maybe hazy. Yeah. Like maybe the yeah the DVD case is laced in LSD or something like that. I think you and I are just highly suggestible. It's the new 4D. Maybe but, so. 5D. But even so, it was yeah. It's nuts. I mean, okay, so I think this is like a a great adaptation actually. And the more and more I think about it, the more I like it. Like after I first watched it, I was like, ah, okay, you know, it's good. But like. Now I'm like, I think this is like one of Linklater's best films. And I think the only way I would want to see it in live action was if Terry Gilliam had made it in the 80s (laughs) or if Federico Fellini made it. Hmm. Wait, what has he done? He's a a famous Italian director who did like Eight and a Half and like Knights of Cabiria and uh, a lot of like classic Italian art house films. Okay. Eight and a half. Is that the one with uh, Eminem? No, I'm just kidding. What? <laughs> That's My eight gosh. miles. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Those are the only two ways I would want to see it done in live action. No David Lynch? Oh. <laughs> oh, he would just. He would make a nightmare of this. Yeah. And it probably wouldn't be good because you'd talk about his own stuff instead of talking about the source material mm-hmm. i think okay <laughs> this would be a very weird version think of woody allen did this oh no woody allen. think how strange it would be it would be so smug yeah Th- this i was very concerned that this was going to be a smug movie mm-hmm. and it mm. wasn't i just don't know i can't handle oh my the substance d yeah, i just woody watch myself allen all day bob arthur uh-huh. yikes <laughs> And I, the weird thing is, I I enjoy watching myself all day. Yes. <laughs> I feel like it could be something like that. It'd be a self obsessed, <laughs> smug little film, <laughs> like Ooh. all of his movies. Yeah. Yep. Well. Decimated. Yeah. <laughs> Who else are we gonna hate on? Ralph Bakshi, obviously. Gosh. <laughs> I like that your guys's animation segment is just like. Connor hates Ralph. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what we're gonna rename yep. the show. Actually, is Connor hates Ralph. Connor hates Ralph. Oh man. One other thing I wanted to bring up. I think it's interesting to look at like the time period that this was made to. Of just, um, even in talking about like live action stuff, like I would not want to see it made today, because I feel like they'd go super over the top with the visual visuals, 
and I, I think it's like perfect having it be in like kind of a seedy part of Anaheim, which I've been to parts of Anaheim and I'm like, this is like exactly like this, you know? Um, and so that's kind of like the surrealness of like, oh yeah, I've been around this area mm-hmm. and it's, you know, strange seeing this and it not being too far off from that. But I think it's perfect having it set like that and I just wouldn't want to, I feel like someone would try to make it a big blockbuster sort of thing now and I, I just don't feel like that would do it justice, really. That makes sense, mm. yeah. It's not supposed to be like an amazing CG spectacle. Mm. I think it just depends on who's who's taking on the project, you know? I don't think, I don't, I mean, it's like if Linklater were to do it today, would he do it differently? I don't know. But, uh, Obviously, you don't want to give it to some... I don't think I want to see a Michael Bay version of this movie. But... <laughs> but, yeah, you'd, you'd want to uh, give it to a director who would treat it with care and uh, the right kind of gloves, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to hear, like, Linklater's desire for this film and, like, starting off with Waking Life, he's like, I wanted to make, like, an adult animated film because... A lot of adults are like, oh, animated movies are just for kids. And I wanted to show him that this is a powerful medium that you can do mm-hmm. other things with it. And he's like, I didn't feel like it had as much of an impact as it did. So I'm going to do a scanner darkly as well. But afterwards, he was like, animation is too exhausting. I'm never doing another animated movie yeah. again. Aww. But I hope this continues the trend of animated films. And he was like really excited whenever uh, Robert Zemeckis did the Beowulf adaptation. Ooh. You know, where he used, like, the same, like, CG technology from the Well, it's just motion capture, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. But he's, like, you know, it's still, like, not traditional animation and, like, doing it as a more adult-oriented film. And I think that's, like, why he was, like, yeah, this is great, like, that this is happening. But it makes me wonder, like, you know, what would his thoughts be on, like, Sausage Party or something like that? Would he love it or would he hate it, you know? I do really love that mentality, though, of, like... There's so much untapped potential and, like, so much room to explore and be creative with animation. Mm-hmm. It is exhausting. <laughs> but I do think that's really cool that he was like, I'm going to try this. I'm going to push this. He treated it with respect. Yeah. Which is what we're trying to do with this series. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just a bummer that it tanked, you know? Because it, it had, like, yep. an $8 million budget, and I think it made, like, six or seven million dollars which is like pretty impressive for like a rotoscoped (laughs) adult animated film you know it's like that is not like box office material but it was just kind of smashed in this awful position where it was like between uh like cars had just come out oh really um yeah Uh, this is 2006 so yeah cars was out you know there was an ice age sequel that had come out um pirates of the caribbean dead man's chest you know x-men 3 all of these like huge blockbusters that just stole like all of the money and all of the publicity away from this mm-hmm. Ooh, i was gonna ask what do you guys think of uh oh shoot what what's that rotoscope thing that's being advertised everywhere right now uh on something do you know what i'm talking about like no. it's being promoted on <laughs> it looks gorgeous i think uh, on wine oh no the new tv show yeah yeah what is that called um, uh yeah no i know what you're talking about it, that that does look mm-hmm. really good yeah undone yeah yeah okay i'm almost like you can't get on instagram without it being like all over your feed or Mm -hmm. at least mine anyway maybe they just know i like animation (laughs) but um it looks very surreal and Mm. very smooth and very beautiful Mm -hmm. and you can tell 
they had a team that like took their time and um it it's a little bit of a bummer I guess like with the production issues they had with this one that they they felt like they didn't reach their full potential with the animation because like Mm -hmm. there were moments of it where it had this gorgeous clarity yeah it could have been something different I mean, it's not that bad. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot. There's a lot that's good about it, but mm-hmm. just yeah. like knowing that there's other rotoscopes out there that do something absurd, um, smoothly. Right, because this mm-hmm. they were literally working until like the last moment. Like, they didn't get to have yeah. like a pl- publicity run because mm-hmm. you know that's supposed to happen like three or four months before, um, you know, the film is released, where they bring it into festivals and test screenings, you know, all that sort of stuff. And it's like, they couldn't do that because the movie wasn't finished. And so they just kind of had to rush it out. And like, you know, so like no one heard about it. That's so frustrating. And like all the animators are like, yeah, it's like an unfinished film. Man, like Mm. that would be so hard to walk away from Mm -hmm. after investing all that time. Yeah. And be like, it could have been something else. Just that. That's what happens when you try and merge art with business and commerce. You know, you got to have deadlines. Ugh. You got to mm-hmm. you got to meet quotas, and you got to make profit. Yeah, and yeah. you got to do it on a on a timely schedule. And so it's always frustrating when it's like, I just want the art to be so good. <laughs> give them yeah. give them ten years. I don't care. Give me ten exactly. Like, yeah. oh man, this would have been gorgeous after ten years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. There is always yeah. that tension. Yep. Well, should we move on to trivia and challenge? Let's do it. All right. Trivia question number one. Uh, there has been a lot of sci-fi film adaptations off of novels. Who is the most adapted sci-fi author? Is it A, Philip K. Dick, B, Jules Verne, C, Arthur C. Clarke, or D, Isaac Asimov? Ooh. I feel like it's got to be Jules Verne. That's what I would guess. Final answer? Yeah. I think that's my answer, yeah. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, probably partially because Georges Méliès did, like, a million versions of, like, all of his stories. And, you know, like, Uh, I mean, you have all of, like, the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea adaptations, Journey to the Center of the Earth, you know, Around Mm -hmm. the World in 80 Days, all of that. It's Mm -hmm. hard to beat that. That's kind of what I was thinking, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. What was Richard Linklater's first Oscar nomination? Now, he's not won, but he's only been nominated for things. Was it... A, Before Sunset, B, Boyhood, C, Dazed and Confused, or D, Bernie? I don't think it's Dazed and Confused. Surely it's not Bernie. I want to say Before Sunset. That's what I'm leaning towards. What do you think, Elise? Uh, I think I remember Boyhood being nominated for something. I know it was nominated, yeah. I'm going to guess Before Sunset. Okay, I'm going to stick with Boyhood. Final answer? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's correct. It's Before Sunset. What was what was the nomination? Best Writing Adapted Screenplay. Huh. Of course. Yeah, that makes sense. I've got to watch that. I, I, wanna, yeah, I should buy the Criterion Collection. I'm going to buy it so, as soon as I find it. Because <laughs> like, they, they have all three of them in like a package mm-hmm. for Criterion. I just don't know if I want to take a risk like that without having seen them first. You'll love them. You also said I'd love... Uh, Shape of Water. The the Shape of Water. <laughs> you didn't like Shape of Water. Those are two water? very different films. Yeah, I know, but I don't know. Connor's pretty quick to say, "Oh, Riley, you're gonna love this movie." 
But most of the most time, of the time you do. Most of the time he's right, but not every time. Yeah. Yeah. No. Can't always be right. <laughs> yep. That one that one was a divisive one for sure. Yeah. I don't really think it was best picture quality, but well, maybe best picture quality like to get nominated sure, but I don't know about winning. Mm. Did it win? I, I can't remember. It did. It did. Yeah, yeah it won best picture. All right, final trivia question. So another screenplay was written and developed for this film. Who was originally going to direct it? Was it A, David Cronenberg, B, Steven Spielberg, C, David Lynch, or D, Charlie Kaufman? Cronenberg would make a lot of sense, actually. Because I remember watching History of Violence, Mm -hmm. and that was a pretty, like, oh, like, what's happening kind of movie. The Fly. Yeah, The Fly. I I could easily see that. I think that's... I don't know if that one is actually the answer, though. Spielberg feels like one of the least appropriate Yeah, directors. that seems like the least likely. He did Minority Report and AI. Oh, I guess so. He's not just the dinosaur man. Mm-mm. <laughs> and Ready Player I, One. <laughs> I still haven't Oh, seen yeah. That. I don't know. I think Cronenberg's my answer. Okay, I'm just going to say David Lynch because I, I wish it was. <laughs> <laughs> It's incorrect. It's D. Charlie Kaufman. What? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Wait, what has he done? Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, yeah, I guess I could. There's some common commonalities there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, common threads. You ready for your challenge? Yes, sir. All right. List ten Philip K. Dick adaptations. Oh man. So Blade weird. Runner, Scanner Darkly. Uh. The Man in the High Castle. Does that count? It's an adaptation. Uh, it's a TV show. Yeah, I didn't. I guess I didn't say film. That'll count. <laughs> okay. And it goes downhill from here. At <laughs> uh, least help me out. What do you I got? I can't. I, you listened to <laughs> two that I knew right up front. I literally uh, just okay. mentioned one. Was it, Wait, did um, you do Eternal Sunshine too? You, no? Okay. Uh, what, you what did. Were you what did you say? Let's see. Cars. On the director you doubted in the last one, Cars. That'd be so good. Cars. Dick wrote Cars. I mean, it's kind of dystopian out there, dude. Yeah. Where are the people? All the cars are on drugs. Yeah. Spoiler. Driving themselves. Edgy. Edgy commentary. Although one of them actually is on was on mushrooms or something. What? Who? The VW bus. Remember? Yeah. Oh, that's a weird joke. Yeah, man. He talks like that all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, dang it this is actually tough I don't honestly know if I know any others you definitely um, do I do okay mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger is in one of them oh total, total recall yep oh should have known that I oh guess. minority report yep oh <laughs> Matt Damon is I mean, in is that... you're at five right now okay it has something to do with hats no meet Joe Black that's Brad Pitt that's yeah. not Matt Damon uh, Miss Talented Mr. Ripley? Nope. Oh, um, Adjustment Bureau? Yep. Ah. Okay. These other ones might be a little more difficult. Like, they're well-known, but not, like, crazy popular. Nicolas Cage is in one, though. Face-Off? Nope. <laughs> the Wicker Man? Nope. National Treasure? Yeah. No. <laughs> you said yeah, and um. I got so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Nicholas Cage. Oh, uh, 
It's not the one about him being an alcoholic, is it? What is the name of that one? The one he won an Oscar for? No, that David Lynch directed that in Leaving Las Vegas? Yeah, Leaving Las Vegas. No. The only movie in my head is Con Air, and that can't nope. be right. There's no way. <laughs> about Vampire's Kiss? Yeah. Nope. That'd be so good, though. <laughs> It's like a one-word title. Oh, adaptation. Nope. Oh, it's not. That totally seems like it'd be it. <laughs> uh. Okay, it's not before. What is, what is the antonym for before? After. No. After is the antonym for before. I, try a different <laughs> word. Uh, later. No. Oh, oh, cinema. oh, next. Yes. No. Oh, next. Next. I mean, can you count Blade Runner 2049? Uh, oh. <laughs> I'm struggling not here. Technically an adaptation. Uh, ben Affleck and Aaron Eckhart in one. And Uma Thurman and Paul Giamatti. They're all in the same one. What? Directed by a legendary action director. Is this the one where if your hair falls out, they can get you? <laughs> I have what? no idea what you're talking I about. <laughs> I can't think of the title. I'm sure it's like it's, a it's horrifying a, movie. Like it's a futuristic sci-fi thing, and if like they get a skin flake or a hair off of you, then you Gattaca. 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 Oh yeah. Okay. No, it is not Gattaca. Uh, that's a good uh, guess, though. Thank you. That's that sounds like a Philip K. Dick thing. It yeah. does. What do you get um, from working somewhere? Carpal tunnel. No. <laughs> Carpal tunnel. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's funny. P- uh, money. Payday. Close. P- paycheck. Yes. Wait, what's that one about? Um, what seemed like a breezy idea for an engineer <laughs> to net a millions of dollars leaves him on the run for his life and piecing together why he's being chased. Ooh. That's the IMDb summary. Wow. When did that one come out? Uh, that was 2003, directed by John Woo. That's the one with Ben Affleck and Aaron Eckhart. Mission Impossible 2. Yep, and Face Off. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Honestly, I, I'm not going to get anywhere without hints, probably. Yeah, okay. Uh, like, I don't know, release dates, maybe? Would that be helpful? Uh, yeah, one was 1995. And apparently there's a ton of Philip K. Dick novels. Apparently. I would not have guessed there were this many adaptations. Yeah, that's wild. Uh, another was 2001. This one has Gary Sinise and Vincent D'Onofrio in it. And Tony Shalhoub. Spy Kids. Yes. <gasps> what? No. Oh. Gosh dang it. Every time. <laughs> dang. Another one is a foreign language film that I would highly doubt if you get. Are they the same title as the book or has the title been changed? One of them is the other is not. I don't know, dude. I might just have to forfeit here. Like, I'm com- I'm coming up with nothing. Yeah, can't help. <laughs> so the other three I had written down were Screamers, Imposter, and Confession d'un Bajo. <laughs> Imposter. That's the one with Gary Sinise and Vincent D'Onofrio yeah. and Tony Shalhoub in it. I did, I did a l- I guess, a little bit better than I would have thought. but Yeah, that's pretty good. That was a tough one, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That was fun, though. There's a- ten more movies I need to watch. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. I think that's about it for this episode. Uh, yeah, Elise, it was awesome having you on. And we'll definitely yeah, have to bring you on again. And... That was very fun. Quite <laughs> a lot of things. <laughs> Riley, do you want to introduce the next episode that we're doing that you're very excited for? Uh, we're doing a movie called Fantastic Planet. Uh, Isn't it Rene Lalou tra- that directed I it? I just watched... Okay. Yeah, I just watched the trailer for the first time before we started this podcast. It looks pretty trippy. Um, yeah, made in 1973. That's all I know about it. Yeah, so it's French. French, okay. Yeah. It has a very interesting animation style to it. It's very yeah. off the wall. Elise has seen it before. She can, yes. she can weigh in. Oh, man. I have no clue what it's about, and I even after watching the trailer, I still have... I probably have less of an idea of what it's about. That's fun. I watched it. I don't know what it's about either. <laughs> it's uh, okay. unsettling. Interesting. All right. I won't say too much else. But <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm intrigued. I'll say that. Yeah. Make sure to look us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that sort of stuff. We try to post daily whenever we have weeks where we're releasing episodes. Uh, yeah, and we just post like fun trivia stuff questions all that please feel free to weigh in on anything send us messages about you know what you think we could do better or things that you don't like and for twitter instagram all that sort of stuff you can find us at at rules of the frame you can also email us as well which i think there's a link to that on all of our social media platforms but yeah just get in contact with us you know start a dialogue all that sort of stuff and we got to thank John Skinner for the use of the graphic and Caden Reed and Luke Hogan for the theme song and outro. And uh, as always, this has been film analysis for a modern audience. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> uh.